Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, I'm so excited. I've been wanting to have this lady on here for so long. We get to hear from Paula Cole. I think everyone remembers that period in like the late 90s, early 2000s, when singers like Paula and Sean Colvin and Sarah McLaughlin and those types, Joan Osborne, were really ruling the radio. And they were so great. In fact, I don't know, I didn't, I had forgotten this, but Paula was nominated as a producer of that breakthrough album of hers, This Fire, that had Cowboys on it, this song. That's amazing. No, I, I can't think of another female that was ever nominated as best producer, except for her. So that period, we talk about that in here, was so impactful. The Lilith Fair kind of generation is what I think of it. But when it was over, a lot of those people kind of went back to having regular careers. And it's a shame. She uh, kind of expounds on that in here. Now, she's been at it all this time, always putting out really quality work. And she just put out a new album a couple of months ago called American Quilt, which is her doing versions of like spirituals and folk songs. It's gorgeous. And we talk about a lot of that in here. What inspired this kind of a move? Her voice is still just as strong as it ever was. Uh, so we get into a lot of that. We get into, of course, her time with Peter Gabriel. We talk about those days and what she's been doing ever since, the ups and the downs. I don't know what my deal was, but I get choked up in here like three different times. I don't know why. Something about talking to Paula was very, I don't know, cathartic or something. But anyway, she's a really wonderful lady. She uh, has moved back to her hometown outside of Rockport, Massachusetts, and that's where I talked to her from. I'm going to kick it off with this. I saw you in concert on the Amen Tour. It would have been around 99, 2000. It was in Salt Lake City at the Zephyr Club. And um, I'll never forget this. So you're singing Cowboys. And um, when you get to the line and you go have a beer, you flipped off the room. I mean, you held up your middle finger. And it, it, I was not a smart, I'm not a very smart guy, Paula. And so I'm not a big lyric person. And I hadn't thought deeply enough whether Cowboys was a satirical song or not. But when you did that and you flip it, you know, you, this, it, like, this is what I have to say about you going to get that beer. It drove it home so clearly. And I will never forget the look on your face. You weren't looking right at me, but it felt like you did. Oh, and uh, I'm just like, yeah, go get that beer, buddy. You know, <laughs> I love that. I will never forget that. I just wanted you oh, to know. I'm so busted. But yeah, you know, there, lest there be any confusion, I wanted to rectify that. <laughs> right. right. And I thought, oh, that's what that song is about. I get it now. <laughs> yes, it's a weaving of irony and, you yes. know sardonicism satire yes. and and melancholy and gender roles and all of it kind of woven together yeah i just was a you know i was a, a myopic uh, college student at the time i didn't think too <laughs> hard about it but <laughs> that drove it home um, well then you did probably think about it and thank you and thank you for being of course Yes, thank you. I'm glad you came to Salt Lake City so I could see you in concert. Hardly anyone came and came to Salt Lake City back then. I know, and we don't frequent Salt Lake to City to Yeah, that's no. that's true. I know. I wish. Very well, now night. I live in Denver. It's not a big deal anymore, oh. but um yeah, at the but time that was go, a big deal. 
when you go to Salt Lake City, like the people are so grateful. They're fantastic audiences. Yeah. I, I, this comes up on here a lot because um, usually the people I talk to, like you, recognize that there's actually a really hearty music scene kind of, or, you know, loving fans there, people who love it. I, th- I think especially back then they were so starved for people to come through and, you know, show them, uh, show up for them. Now it's better. Bands come through there all the time, especially kind of indie bands. But at the time mm-hmm. we were, I just went to everything I could think of. And when you came through, I was so glad. And I, I remember, you know, I was in college and I came up for the show. It was great. In fact, I, I don't want you to have to dwell on that stuff on, on that period. Cause there's so much more to talk about, but I am curious. There were, there are two things from that period in your life that I find most interesting. One is being nominated for producer of the year for this fire. And you're the first woman that's ever been nominated with no collaborators, no, ever no, anything else. And this, I, this was, I've had this conversation with somebody else recently. Why are there not more female producers? I don't, in fact, it didn't even occur to me until like the last couple of years, like, where are they? Is this something that they get pushed out of? Are they not aspiring to this? Is it, are men being oppressive about this role? Why, why are there not more? That's a big question. And it will probably take a, at least a paragraph. Okay. <laughs> take as long as you want. <laughs> we got time. <laughs> I mean, it's culture. It's, Is it? changing, it's changing culture. It's the same question could be applied to why aren't there more female drummers, um, mm. you know, trumpet players, yeah. um, electric guitar players, engineers, pilots. Good point. C- CEOs, you know, and, and mm-hmm. when I was in the business, really women were just kind of relegated to PR within the culture of a record company, or you didn't see too many female band members. I was there on Lilith fair and the female, the females were the artists. Otherwise the bands were male, you know, the crew was male, the, the record company was male. So, so this is the, you know, welcome to the music business. When I went to music college at Berkeley college of music, I mean, the ratio was high. I think it was something like 13 to one men to women when I went there. And welcome to the music business. So that's, yeah. and it is better now, but it still is predominantly male at that college and within the business. Yeah. I think it starts with parenting and um, encouraging our daughters to be noisy yeah. and messy mm. and build and get in the mud and make noise on a drum kit or to buy her an electric guitar if she's interested. Right. Because usually we end up on in the upper stratosphere, like flute and violin and singing and and piano, that kind of stuff. Supposedly more feminine things. It's almost like they, a a role, you know, gender roles were assigned to these instruments, even let alone like roles within the music industry and they've just yeah. stuck to that. And you would think the music industry would be more progressive than that. And yet they're one of the slowest adopters of like you're th- saying things like this, even getting women in the rock and roll hall of fame or whatever, but like, why can't a woman produce an album? There's just not many of them. No, there's not yeah. because you're, you're dealing with, I mean, let's face it. You're dealing with like microaggressions the whole way. And then you're dealing with like the seed of the patriarchy. I think I think the music business has been, definitely been like a, a heavy seat of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. 
it's been intense to negotiate. And I'm just so grateful that I didn't know. I was kind of naive. And I had an amazing father who raised me to be a good camper and to, you know, to be kind of um, industrious and self-driven. So I um, I worked with a producer on my first album and I learned a lot from him, but it, it made me realize I don't want a middleman. I want yeah. my ideas to go straight to tape because we were working with tape at the time, you know, and I didn't want to have to explain my ideas. I wanted to get them straight. And I realized too, if I, if I didn't have a middleman, I could, um, it, it wouldn't be so sheen and glossy mm. sounding. I really wanted it to be a little more raw and live feeling. Um, I, I also eliminating, um, realizing that if you eliminate that middleman, then you're not giving away a huge chunk of the pie, even financially, like you own more of your master. You own, it's, yeah. it's financially advantageous, but more so because the sound is going to live on in perpetuity, yeah. right? You're making something that hopefully lasts forever beyond my li lifetime. Yeah. I'd like to think that my music will last beyond my lifetime and my daughter will inherit the copyrights, which live 50 years after my lifetime. So I, I like to think long like that. And I want yeah. my music to be good. I want to be proud of it when I die, you know? So if it's not right, then that's like, oh, my soul isn't expressing itself right. correctly. I have to fix that. So yeah. I had to fix it. I had to produce it myself. And have I worked with producers, you know, since? Yes, I've worked with co-producers since, but mostly I've produced all my albums myself. Really? I wondered about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because it's free and because I can do it and because it's yeah. great for me, because it just feels like I'm flying. That's what I'm meant to do. But the first time I did it, you know, it, it was hard because I had to get record company approval, which meant for them, you have to be under budget. So I was slicing, slicing, slicing the budget, doing everything I could, making a million phone calls, getting tape at cost, getting studio time at half price. You know, like I had to I had to deliver what was this fire my second album for less than half of a budget i had to just be so under budget because that's how they were thinking you know yeah. they were like holding me to the line in a very sure. kind of oppressive way of course so if they're going to make the if they're going to make the sacrifice of having you uh, the female artist produce the album then you better it better be good and you better come in you better overcorrect come in super under budget, you know, super before the deadline. Everything That's has right. to be not just on time, but even a step better than that because you have to prove yourself, which shouldn't be the case, but that's what I'm imagining is happening. That's right. And these were modest, that was a modest budget for those times anyway. Yeah. yeah. It, it was like jumping through hoops and hoops. And, and I was just constantly on the phone. I had to exercise all of my entrepreneurship to make that happen. And then, you know, um, take over mixes when everyone else wants to go home and you're, you're the one stuck at the console at yeah. two in the morning, like that guitar, all those guitars on where have all the cowboys gone? That's beautiful. Greg Lease. He's like a legendary uh, pedal steel player. He's played with giants and he is a giant and he played all these guitars. I mean, there's acoustics, there's electrics, there's pedal steel. It's this beautiful watercolor painting of guitar, but that guitar comp, like putting the composition together was Herculean. Mm. And you know, that, that's like me staying in the studio in, in the wee hours, the yeah. wee hours. It just took so much work um, to deliver. 
And then it came out beautifully. It just came out beautifully. And I remember finally when one of the executives from the company came and heard Cowboys, we had finally had a mix. And it was just so obvious that there was something magical about it. You could feel it in the room. And then it just took off and raced up, you know, the the charts. It was, everything was happening. It's like the universe aligned and there was zeitgeist. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I have a lot of tangential questions based on everything you just said, but one of them in particular (laughs) I wanted to mention. uh, About early 2000s, probably shortly after I would have seen you or right around that time, I was um, I interviewed Amy Ray from the Indigo Girls for a for an article I was writing for a newspaper, and we were Lilith was Lilith Fair was a really big deal at the time, obviously. And one of my questions to her was, "You must be, you know, what's been the impact? You must be enjoying this sort of moment for women artists to get, you know, so much more exposure and and the sh- spotlight shined." And her answer, I'll never forget it. And I wondered if you related to this. She was actually saying that it was almost doing more harm than good because what it ultimately did was it 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 put all these fantastic women art female artists and made it just a moment that when it's not fashionable anymore people get over it and move move on i'm paraphrasing here but it's basically like well yeah they gave us a, they gave us our time we got to do the lilith fair and then when that was is less popular everybody moves on and no one there's no like, you know, long chemtrail of success for a lot of, not no, but less of one. You know what I mean? And it really surprised me that she said that because I hadn't thought of that before, that you're you're putting all these pe- fantastic artists on a stage, but what are you going to do when Lilith Fair isn't the thing anymore? Are you still going to support these people? Are you still going to think they're fantastic artists and, and listen to them and play them on the radio? Or is this just a moment in time that people are getting excited about and then planning to move on to the next thing? Does that make sense? Well, yes, because I lived it. Yeah. And that, and that is true. That's absolutely true. Really? Oh, absolutely Shocked true. Me. I mean, now, a couple decades later, I'm really proud I was part of Lilith Fair and I was really yeah. part of its formation because I, I was opening for Sarah and we realized, Sarah McLaughlin, we realized that that didn't happen enough, mm-hmm. that two women weren't performing together. Promoters would discourage a, um, an artist that happened to be a woman to have another woman open for her and radio stations across this country were discouraged play even two women within the same hour, you know, musically. And I, and I know DJs that swear by that. Some who, who are older, you know, older than me, you could, you couldn't even play like a handful of female stars, especially on country radio. Like there, it was very narrow. Was, and so it also created this sense of competition between us, which is is too bad. So in that sense, Lilith was a beautiful uh, spiritual breakthrough so that we could be more harmonious and supportive of one another. But but it ended up kind of benefiting Sarah and not, not necessarily the rest of us. And for someone, you know, like me, like I was probably – you know, arguably one of the most feminist and darkest horses on that lineup. It was like we were just a fad or something. Yeah. After it yeah. happened, and then in came you know um, the boy bands of the early aughts and Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and Jess- Jessica Simpson and InSync and all of that. Backstreet Boys. It was like 
you know, Svengali pop where they have a million creators yeah. creating, creating all the intellectual yeah. content and then they're cute and pretty and shiny and they, yep. they all the say, independent artists like you just sort of faded into the background. We can, we can oh, create yeah. these people. We can. Yeah. Yeah. And, and worse, like for me, like the timing was really poor because I was coming up with like a very kind of serious and spiritual album. It was right at the, um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the millennium change. Yeah. And, and that was Amen. And, um, and the timing was just perfectly bad. Yeah. <laughs> perfectly bad. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was like, yeah, it, it definitely, I felt marginalized by, by Lil Fair and um, Shoot. It was a token thing. So, you know, then I have to kind of, I kind of realized I hated, you know, my job at that time. And I needed to step away because... Yeah. I love music and I wanted to love it again. So I took time off from the business and, and it's really been like a rebuilding of a second, more authentic career. And yeah, yeah, Lilith Lilith definitely was amazing. And it also made my career complicated and it made it harder for a lot of the female artists going forward. So lame. I mean, I guess, go ahead. Sorry, but Tori Amos, she was very vocal about saying, I'm so glad I wasn't part of Lilith Fair, mm. you know, that I was just me. And I think that's right. You know, I yeah. think that's true. Yeah. I, 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 hopefully things have changed. I mean, in a way, I, not to take anything away from like Katy Perry or Miley Cyrus or Beyonce or whatever. I do believe these women are, especially Beyonce, true artists in their own right. You know, um, I think they're all being played back to back on the radio, hopefully, um, without any kind of po- politics involved. Anyway, it's a shame. Lilith Fair, it just should be something to be celebrated. And uh, that's, even say, even though I'm saying that, I feel like I'm giving, I'm saying the wrong things. I'm saying, I'm, oh, gi- I'm speaking right. to this fad. You know, I, anyway, I hope I'm coming across all right. I just, uh, yes. it shouldn't okay. be a one-time thing. It shouldn't be this interesting outlier. It should just be normal life. But I know. And you anyway. know what? It's, a lot of time has passed. And I, and, and I am myself all these years later and I have yeah. my career and, and everything's good. And, and now we can kind of look back at Lilith fondly and warmly as yeah. a bright, a bright, beautiful thing. And honestly, those audiences were some of the best audiences ever. Good. Good. Oh, they were amazing. Good. Um, okay. One last thing about this fire. Um, me is my favorite Paula Cole song.
And I've always, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It's kind of choking me up. I've always just appreciated how vulnerable and honest you were in that song. And I, uh, first of all, I wish it had, I remember hearing it on the radio, but I wanted it to be as big as the other two because it was speaking to me so profoundly. Um, that and Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls, to me, lyrically, are just like so directly, exactly right that uh, I just love them. And so, but what I take from that song is that your willingness to talk about your vulnerabilities and your insecurities has the opposite effect. It makes you stronger. And it, it you come away from that saying, but Paula Cole is not a pushover. You know, it's not... It's not like I'm so sad. It's like I'm dealing with my insecurities and that's what gives me strength. And that's what I love about that song. And I wondered what, please tell me the story of the creation of me because I love that tune. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. And and I too love Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls. Yeah. It's a great song. Oh, you know, the first time I went to therapy, I was kind of towards the end of my college years and I was just extremely stressed out and breaking down and I didn't know why. And I was coming from stoic New England culture and I started going to a therapist because I just couldn't kind of keep it together. And I couldn't look her in the eyes. I couldn't feel deserving and entitled to lift my head up and look her in the eyes and start talking about myself. And it took, I, I would go to the therapist's office and I would cry every week for six months until finally I was able to lift my head and look her in the eye and start talking about myself. So I think that I've discovered that it's a profoundly healing and empowering to talk about what's going on in your internal world. Yeah. And by doing so, it sets you free. It sets you free. So I found that the music is a healer. And That's it's what it is. amazingly healing to, to others too. So yeah. I, I feel fortunate to have it in my life. It's made me a better human being. Mm. And I learn about other people. I mean, wow. Mm. Wow. Um, so, yes, I'm so glad you found that. It, it That particular song just sprung out of me. Really? Oh, yeah. It just seems cathartic in that way. That's what I love about it is because, like I said, it, in those moments when we all get them, but I, you said everything that I feel in those moments, and so succinctly and perfectly, I, cathartic is the best word I can think of just to get all that out. Um, that's what I've always loved about it. In the end, you're just facing yourself. The only yeah. control you have is over yourself and your reactions and and to remain positive if you can, if you can yeah. muster that in the face of adversity. And yeah. so, um, yes, it was a me talking to myself. Yeah, yeah. I love it so much. And um, now, conversely, <laughs> let's go to the other side of the spectrum because another <laughs> song of yours that I love is Sex off of Indica. <laughs> <laughs> and I watch the way you dance 
Now, I, my understanding is that Ithaca is kind of a divorce album. I mean, there's a song on there called Prenup, so it must be, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wondered if that song, are you just trying to make your ex-husband jealous? Because if you are, it's working. It is such a beautiful, sexy, you know, <laughs> uh, song. And I just thought, I mean, to show both sides of Paula Cole, this is everything you get with Paula Cole. You get the, you get insights into your dark, your de- deepest, darkest vulnerabilities and your sexual power and everything in between, you know? And I just thought, where did the song sex come from? If I can even ask, maybe that's too personal. Oh, well, no, I mean, um, God, <laughs> it's so funny because I write about it, but then talking about it is a whole other matter. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Talking about it. It's so interesting. Yes. There's like a couple of those for me where, I just kind of talk and sing about this very intimate part of myself uh, feeling love from this fire is also that way. And, yes. and at that time in the nineties, I just felt like there wasn't enough intimacy and sensuality and sexuality expressed in music by women in, in like a really beautiful, sensuous, empowering way, like getting into the mind because in a way, the mind is the sexual organ, right? So just describing, describing uh-huh. my mind, and and there's a few of them. Oh, secretary is another one. Oh yeah. Secretary, oh, I reach up toward the highest shelf and you saddle up behind me. I do not know you're there until I feel your hands are sliding up my thighs. Secretary, oh, I kneel down on the 
So yeah, it's funny, and I'm like trying not to be mortified right now talking. About it <laughs> I'm sorry am, if I'm putting you on the spot. because you know, I am from New England, you know. <laughs> yes. I'm just imagining here's Paula's divorce album, and she wants to put a song on there that her ex-husband can hear what she's up to with her next boyfriend or something like that. You know, like see what you're missing, buddy. You had this. I'm gonna put it right here in a song. That's what I'm imagining, anyway. <laughs> Well, it wasn't so much revenge like that. Okay. No, it was more pure in a way. Okay. Um, and like, yeah, the divorce songs definitely span like more than just Ithaca and Ithaca. I was coming back home to my small New England town after feeling like, you know, I went out like Odysseus conquering monsters in the world. I was battling my battles, right. be trying to become successful achieving goals and then getting wounded and then i got you know custody of my daughter and i had the divorce and and we relocated back to my little hometown which is in one sense a tremendous like ego loss yeah like, I, I hear you. definitely a humbling but i i wasn't going there because of ego i was going there for the real reason which is this, relationships i wanted to raise my daughter with my parents in the picture and so it was a full cycle like an odysseus journey yeah and that's why i call it ithaca because i was going back home and uh in that it talked about all these hard things the divorce and reawakening yeah like sexual and sensual and holistic reawakening yeah is that where you are now are you in ithaca I am just a few towns over from okay. my childhood home. My childhood home is Rockport, Massachusetts. Okay. okay. And I'm just a few towns away from that. So I'm still involved in my parents' life. You know, they're old now. And I yeah. help take care of them through COVID. And, you know, the world is just getting smaller and we can work online. And I have yeah. an airport nearby. Good. So I've really enjoyed this part of my life being here. And I go to New York all the time anyway. So, it, and I tour. So yeah. I'm connected to the world. But I, I think it's this realization that our relationships are the most important thing. Like how we love, and did we leave love behind? Yeah. That's the most important part of a lifetime. Like no Grammy's going to keep you company when you're an old person. It's, it's the love. Yeah. Did you live your life well? Did you leave love behind? So. I came back and I've had a wonderful, some wonderful years here. And my, my, my daughter and my stepkids have known their grandparents. Mm. So great. That's important. My dad died of COVID over the holidays and um, oh. we had, I love my dad a lot, but we had a kind of a tense, or I don't know, tense, just a weird relationship the last few years for some messy family things and and I miss him but I also am trying to I, I also I'm trying to stay closer to my mom you know now especially and she lives in Utah still and anyway I hear you when you get older family dynamics play a much bigger part in your decision making process and where you live and what you do and what you can do than you probably figured it would when you were younger you know 
I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. And, Thanks. and, and that's, wow, that's incredible. Yeah. That guy it's been a weird, COVID. I'm so sorry about that. God. Weird time for a lot of people. Anyway, okay. We don't have to dwell on me. I want to talk about you and uh, American Quilt because um, I'm curious. First of all, you singing these types of songs, these spirituals and folk songs, and uh, it's so perfect. But I know what a fantastic writer you are. And I wonder if someone like you who does exactly what they want to do and always says what they want to say, when you decide to make a covers album like this, is that that's the statement I'm guessing is that I want to shine a light on this time, these songs and what these people have to say. That's my message. Mm, And thank you for that. Yes. A covers album, because I've, I consider myself a writer first and foremost, but I want to honor the masters that helped form me. I want to honor these beautiful songs. And I want to honor my parents because my dad, I mean, complicated, brilliant man, still alive. Thank God. He, you know, he would play bass in polka bands, um, for money on on weekends he was a professional musician and he was with a band called johnny pritko and the connecticut high tones and they (laughs) were a big deal folk band and they like had albums and and meanwhile he's also going pursuing his doctorate like he had graduated valedictorian from bachelor's valedictorian from masters from yukon just like type a driven brilliant man he can fix a car and then he can go play Duke Ellington song on the piano and then banjo and then an upright bass and so on and so forth. And I learned so much from him. I learned that really music is genreless. It, you know, classifying it is like more for the Philistines. The musicians themselves, we don't classify it so much. Like you should be able to flow from one genre to another. It's usually the same chord. You just add a couple, you know, a couple notes for color, but it's just a change in feel. It just might mean that it's music from the city rather than the mountains or, you know, and so I wanted to eliminate barriers and classifications. I wanted to put these beautiful, diverse songs together and honor them as American music, honor the masters like Louis Armstrong and Emmylou Harris and Bessie Smith, John Coltrane, people I love honor Traditional American songs that are just dear to my heart, like Shenandoah, Wayfair. Yes. That is, a, I want to, I'm glad you mentioned that one in particular. Who's singing that with you? That song is fantastic. Mm. That version, I should say.
That, who I think you're talking about, it, it, singing at the end and taking, yes. she takes us all home. And her name is Darcel Wilson. Okay. Darcel Wilson is, oh my God, one of my favorite singers and nobody knows about her. No. And I just, she comes out on tour with me sometimes. Uh, I, I love her so profoundly and, and our blend when we sing together yes. is familial. And then she just takes it home. I don't even want to sing. I just want to sit down and listen to Darcel. I mean, she gives me chills. She gives me chills. And, and I love too, that the African-American singer is taking it over from the white singer. Hallelujah. And let that be metaphor for our country. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And um, I'm curious too. I mean, I want to, as I've said, we're going to play snippets of some of these songs in here. And so I want to give people context. First of all, God's going to cut you down. I think <laughs> I think if people know that song, they know it from Moby sampling it in his song Run On. Thank you, Moby, for you know putting shining a spotlight on some of this stuff twenty years ago or whatever it was. But um, what made you pick "God's Gonna Cut You Down" as one of your songs? Because that one is powerful too. Actually, I've never heard the, Mo- no, the Moby. Oh, really? He sampled it in his on that album "Play," that was his huge breakthrough album that sampled all these like Alan Lomax old. Oh my God! Uh, so, yeah. so who did he sample? It was some. He sampled the. Um, it was. Yeah, probably. It wasn't the whole song. It was just um, the the main. I'm trying to. I, I have two songs converging in my head at the same time, and I'm trying to. Piece That's all right. Apart. It wasn't the Johnny Cash version because that was probably pre Johnny Cash. Yeah. Ooh, you're right. Yes. In fact, so I think. Um, might have yeah. been Odetta. Yeah, you're probably right. Was it? It was probably. Anyway, I'm going to go listen to it because the yeah. Odetta version Run On was, by Moby is. This Run song. On. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, why did I do it? Well, because I loved the song. Mm-hmm. I loved. Did the you song. know it from Johnny Cash or from something else? My first impression was from Johnny Cash and then Odetta. But uh, yeah. I, so I loved it. I loved this the slower uh, work song. The feeling yes, of being a work song. And so I made it even slower. 
and then I've, that's Darcel again, Darcel Wilson singing with me, and we're singing all those vocals together. And it just feels like some spiritual weight yes, and does. a morality tale and a morality tale told by women. It's so, it's, I'm proud of that track. I think it came Good. out great, you know. Good. You wrote Hidden in Plain Sight. That's the only one that's not a cover on here, correct? I know it's so weird to have an original song in there, but, but, but the story behind this is fascinating. Tell us. Mm. Well, I only wrote one song in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fallow season for writing, yeah. but uh, I wrote this one song hidden in plain sight. And that's because when I was putting this album together with all these diverse songs, you know, from all over America, from different centuries, and it was such a patchwork. I thought, how am I going to unify this? Well, it's like a quilt and my mom's an artist and a quilter. So American quilts became the concept and the title in my mind. But then I felt, you know, doing some more and more research about quilting, that there was an aspect of our American history that was not represented and it needed to be. And that was our slavery, America's history of slavery and the ingenious invention of slave quilts. And slave quilts are mind-blowing. And I found that nobody knew about them. So I've almost felt called upon, okay, if nobody knows about them and there's no song out there, because I was looking, is there any song out there about slave quilts? No, nothing. And then I'd ask people and they wouldn't know about it. So I felt I had to write it. And slave quilts were made by women and women's work was considered trivial and meaningless. So that was overlooked which yeah. makes it the perfect place to be a revolutionary, right? So um, women, sl- slaves on plantations would create quilts that encompassed clues and advice to the other slaves who were seeking to flee to the Underground Railroad. Wow. 
because you know they were kept from edu being educated they would use visual symbolism and it was incorporated into quilts so for example monkey's wrench is a quilting patch mm. and that means gather your tools gather the things that you're going to need you're going to need this tool you're going to need to wrap a loaf of bread and then there'd be a quilt pattern called flying geese and these these quilting patterns still exist by the way mm. flying geese when you're fleeing in spring from the south you want to follow the geese because they're flying north in the spring they will lead you north you've another quilting square uh, bear trail follow the tracks of animals you follow the tracks of animals they'll take you to water they'll take you to places to hide and so on and so so forth wagon wheels you know you look for your conductors and people that will hide you in wagons yeah. So each is very, very ingenious and very profound and, and, and also no idea. positive. It's positive. It shows the ingenuity and the positive message of it. Um, they were escaping to Canada where, you know, slaves could be free people out of our country of America, where this is our history and we need to talk about it. Exactly. And this is not my story to tell, but it's not being told. And we need to talk about it. We need to educate each other and we need to remember who we are. You know, why are we as America, a powerful nation today, the leading richest nation in the world? Well, it's because we had all that free labor in the cotton and rice and, and sugar trades, right? It's, yeah. It was on the backs of these people that we robbed from their homes. It's just yeah. incredible. And we have to remember that, right? There's it's, never been reparations. It's no. It's insane. So it we must remember that. And that that quilting square that is uh, hidden in plain sight, that song needed to be a part of our American history in, in the whole of the album. Yeah. And in, in writing Hidden Plain Sight, I made each verse a quilting square. And I would, oh. yeah. Okay. So the song, song is clever in that each verse is a, a quilting square. Got and then it. it takes you through the whole journey of how to get to Canada when you listen to the song. I love it. That's so fascinating. I, another, your last, was it your, was Revolution your last album? I believe it was. Mm -hmm. right? On that one, you do that fantastic Shake the Sky. Sister gonna wake up and shake the sky with the cry. She's gonna rise, she's gonna rise, she's gonna rise. Holding up the sky, holding up our lives. 
love that version of that song. Well, I love the gospel. I love gospel music in general. And um, you doing that song in that style is so fantastic. Where did that song come from? Thank you. And again, that's Darcel Wilson. Oh, she's the hidden gem here. I got to look into Darcel. My gosh. And she's so shy. So she's like not very present on her socials. I wish she were more because I would be be lighting her up, you know? Yes. (laughs) And she's good. I love her so much. And our voices are magical together. And she just, I just want to listen to her quite frankly. I'd rather listen to her than myself, but um, Shake the Sky was an idea from many, many years ago. Huh. I thought, like, I want a song that I could just sing the melody and clap to. Yeah. Sister's yeah. gonna wake up and shake the sky with the cry. She's gonna rise. She's gonna rise. She's gonna rise. Yeah. So that's where, like, the the main heartbeat of the song is. I love and, that. And, uh, it, yeah, it's just gospel and it could be yeah. it could be sung and performed with just hands and feet and voices. Genius. It is genius. <laughs> I love that. You have a way with clapping hands. Watch the women's hands from Harbinger. Watch the woman's hands as she cultivates the land, as she plants the seed, as she's on a knee. That song reminds me a little bit of something Kate Bush might have done. No one, I don't know that anyone thinks about, well, I'm going to write a song where claps and foot stomps and whatever are going to be the primary, you know, kind of rhythm or, you know, movement in this song. Where do these thoughts come from? Well, they come from um, a couple of places. I, I, I love this book. I can't remember the authors, but it was called... Um, what was it called? It was called Half the Sky. And it was about women over the world and how and how we do like the work that makes societies and, mm-hmm. and make the whole world revolve. And yeah. from, you know, the tiny hands of the women making um, our cell phones, right? In so- Southeast Asia, and they, they are just underpaid yeah. to... Um, just the whole world over. And I think of like impoverished nations and I think they don't have access to instruments necessarily. They, they use song and they use clapping, right? If you don't have money and you don't have instruments, that's all you've got. And that's why we have like longstanding oral histories like Shenandoah. Those sailors going across the Atlantic would take the melodies and sing to keep them company and pass the boredom and going up and down the rivers or work songs. That's all you have is rhythm 
the rhythm of your work, the rhythm of your hands and your feet and your song. And I love music so much that I'm always like researching it. And I, and I was in a gospel choir when I went to Berkeley College of Music a long time ago. I just kind of innocently um, auditioned for the gospel choir. And I'm not a religious person, but I love the music so dearly. And I'm a spiritual person. And I was, you know, I was one of the only white people in there, but I, I, I it just changed me. I, I love I love gospel music so much me too. and it, it's been profoundly influential to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I love, I love it too. And I love what you do with it. Now, I hope this isn't too personal of a question, that, but <laughs> like, for instance, on the cover of American quilt, you've let your hair go gray, which shouldn't be a revolutionary statement, but yet in some ways it is. And uh, like, for instance, last night I was watching CBS Sunday morning, and they were interviewing Allison Janney, the actress, and she her show's over, so she cut her hair short and let it go gray, and she was saying how freeing that is, that she doesn't have to, you know, look a certain way for a certain part anymore. She can just take some time off and let it let it be real, and I'm imagining you sort of maybe take, feeling the same way. Letting your hair go gray shouldn't be a political statement, but in some ways it almost is, especially from a woman who's just like, yeah, I'm going to let myself grow old like I do normally. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to play the game. Is that the, are you making a statement or is it just natural? Is it just like, no, this is just me. <laughs> it's all of that. But I think it's more that I was just sick of putting dark hair dye, dumping these chemicals on my head. Yeah. And I, I didn't even... It, you know, it's not entirely noble. Like I just didn't like the way it looked anymore. I felt like it wasn't me. Yeah. And um, I started getting white hair in my twenties. You know, I'm just a prematurely gray person. I'm just maybe it's all the worrying, <laughs> but <laughs> but I, you know, the, the white hair was coming in in full force, and um, I just didn't like the way it looked, even or felt. Yeah. And I was curious. I wanted to know who I really was. So, yeah, it was awkward like that when you start growing it out and you're cutting off that like older self. And it felt really good to like shed an ill-fitting snakeskin and chop yes. off, <laughs> chop <laughs> off the past. And I'm just such, I have such white hair that it's, I like it. And yeah. And I kind of, I now I kind of am funky with it. I kind of bleach out the back a little bit. So it's like part, <laughs> it's part like white and part yellow, I think. Uh -huh. But, <laughs> well. but I, I love it. Like I'm definitely Good. not going back. I think it looks a lot better. I Good. like it. Good. I do too. Okay. I want to go back to, let's go back to Amen for a second, because, you know, as is often the case, people um, when they are sort of shot into the stratosphere of popularity, like you were after this fire, there's, I'm sure, expectations afterwards of what's going to come next. And I personally love the song, I Believe in Love. i 
disco-ness of it. I love that you can dance to it. It sounds like fantastic R&B. In fact, a lot of that album reminds me a little bit of Erica Badu, of like maybe something she might have been doing around that time or you being influenced by her. I don't know if that's true or not, but they remind me of each other in some ways. But I we all know Amen was not you know received, I'm sure, the way that you hoped or the label hoped or whatever. What are your thoughts on that period? Mm, and um, thank you for really knowing all of my catalog. You're really, of course, yeah. You're just referencing so many. Well, I love it. I got more, by the way. Okay. <laughs> anyway, continue. <laughs> and, and so that was like the birth of the neo soul movement around, you know, from coming out of the '90s, and and I, oh, I absolutely loved Baduism, her first yeah. album, and I loved. Uh, Michelle and Degarcello, who you know, I, I love her, and we've collaborated, and she's a friend. And some of the hip hop from that time was just yeah. was so fresh and creative. And they were they would talk about social justice on one hand, and then spirituality on another, and then love on another hand. And they would just weave effortlessly, combining all these things. And I felt like in the pop world, there wasn't much of that freedom lyrically. It was um, there was less social justice and spirituality being woven in, into pop music. So I just, that was where I was in, in my musical journey. And all of my albums are very kind of autobiographical and they're just these snapshots in time. So I made Amen and um, like we were talking about before, it was that exact bad timing of the singer songwriter was considered uncool passe they wanted they were like ushering in big pop big boy band and um you know just a new generation and and amen was serious it was so you know socially politically seeking justice it was spiritual it was so many things and it was weaving in other influences that i had and it's like people wanted me to stay in a box and I was growing out of that box. I wanted to change. So I look to other artists whom I really love and admire as mentors. And like, for instance, Joni Mitchell or Miles Davis or um, John Lennon, they, they needed change and they, they got shit and lost fans when they changed. And you know, Joni Mitchell couldn't stay a folky. She wanted to play with a jazz electric band and she wanted to write with Charles Mingus. So she had this wide, artistically fulfilling journey. And we are the richer for it now, some decades later, that she didn't remain in her box. And John Lennon did not want to remain a Beatle. He wanted to write highly volcanic, personal material and he created Plastic Ono Band album, which is one of my favorite albums in the world. And it's literally a result of him doing tons of therapy, primal scream therapy, you know, touching upon his rage and, and figuring out how to have a relationship with a woman, which he wanted so badly. And he wanted to be number two. And Yoko was number one. It's like, that was more important. His personal growth was so much more important than any trapping of success or being confined to being a beetle. That was hell. He grew and people demonized him for busting out of that box and so on and so forth. So I look to these mentors and I actually teach this to my students 
um, because I'm a visiting scholar at Berkeley College of Music, and I've been a professor there for, gosh, I'm now going into my ninth year, but I teach them, you know, to not be confined, and that the path of an artist is long, and it's really about being your bravest self. And like, often, I'll conclude the day by saying, be brave, Mm -hmm. be brave. And it's not about what's popular. It's about what is true for you. And you have to be vulnerable with that. That's So that's where you'll have longevity is your honesty to the process. And it's about building catalog because, you know, maybe you're not in fashion in 1999 with On Man, or maybe you're not in fashion with your Mingus album, but you just wait. You take that nice, long, slow path of the tortoise and like Aesop's fable, you will win the race. You will win the race. People will catch up to you if you're true to it. Yeah. That's fantastic wisdom now. I'm wondering if at the time it was difficult for you to deal with that. I'm wondering if at the time you're like, you know what, I'm going to, if you're thinking cogn- cognizantly about all this, I'm going to, I'm, I want to break out of the, this fire image people have of me. And I'm going to show that I like these other things too. And I'm going to have my first single on my new album be a disco song. Um, I'm, I hope that doesn't sound reductive. I love that song so much, but more of a dance, you know, um, dance floor song hit. And uh, is the, is the label saying, Paula, please don't do this. Or are you saying, is it difficult for you to see the, the attention dissipate like that, like you had the spotlight you had had you'd once had, and uh, or in the moment, are you are you acquiring this? Are you like that's okay? I'm building a catalog here. It's fine if half my audience left or whatever. The ones who stay will understand. Oh, I wish I could have been that. Uh, that's what I thought. That strong and soft. You know, of course, I was so sad about it, so heartbroken about it, and it's like. Uh, I was, um, I don't know. I felt like a little bit targeted, you know, like there would be, I remember one headline in the paper, where have all the Paula Colfields <laughs> And I just remember all the meanness from the Grammys. Like yeah. when I showed up with my, my luxurious mm. armpit hair, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just like confines, right. You know, these confines and people wanting me to stay one thing. And then if I'm not, then like, they really felt entitled to be kind of cruel about it. And so, uh, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm a sensitive, often to my own detriment. Of course it was hard, of course. And I wanted to be understood, but, but I had huge hits. I didn't, I don't feel, you know, my career was managed well. Like I wish people had come see me live and then they just would have understood. And I, I would have been happier with, um, without such big hits and more of a live concert attending presence for my career. That's, that's who I was. So it's taken time to rectify that. And, um, you know, second chances in the music business, that's rare. So I've had to work really, really hard kind of under the radar as an independent artist now for some years, I took time off. I took nearly an eight year hiatus from the music business because I was, I was, sad about it. I felt misunderstood, but also I, like I said before, I, I just started to hate the thing that I should love. And I wanted my personal relationships back in my life. So I took, I took time off and, and that was a beautiful thing. Like I, I'm so glad I did that. Good. 
And then I came back and I've made all these independent albums. And I feel like finally, you know, a couple of decades later, like I feel like people are understanding me again. And it's very touching, very touching. You know, 25 years later, after this fire now it took a while oh my god <laughs> um speaking of which i think courage is my favorite paula cole album that's the you know that's the kind of jazzier one that you finally came back with in fact one of my favorite songs is yours is hard to be soft where's my white knight my prince to save the day I've always paved my own way I'm all alone Bringing home the bread Raising the kid Fixing the bed I want to be a star Marilyn Monroe, a Cinderella fantasy in life, Clara Bow, a princess and the pea. They try to play the part, surrounded by society, hypnotizing me. It's hard to be soft. Because I, I have a real soft spot for bossa nova music anyway. And oh. um, I'm wondering, you know, what the story with that one is. And you sing it love, beautifully with a, another Brazilian artist who, whose name I'm blanking on all of a sudden. What's Yvonne the story Lins. of this? Yeah, Ivan Linz. And he's like a legend in bossa nova, Ivan Linz. I love that song. So uh, it was it was a clever continuation of the Where Have All the Cowboys Gone gender role. Yeah examination having fun with it yeah. tossing it around and it's talking about like men and the pressure they have on them to be masculine to be confined to their gender role and that sucks they you know we all want to be more than that and we must be more than that yeah. as a human family i mean i i heard about um there's um someone who is it's a man he's got a like a best selling book and he has groups for men about how, don't lose your marriage don't oh. and and how to not lose your marriage and it's about like it, it is about softness and noticing and and doing housework and let me tell you that's really sexy oh, <laughs> that's great in men when yeah. they are kind and you know contributing to domesticity and that's the way it has to be now sure. it just has to be that way because we need dual income families now yeah do we ever yes okay we have patreon supporters and i always throw it out there let them know who i'm interviewing and they can submit some questions if they want and a couple of people got back to me with some things they wanted to know first of all and i had questions about this too carly anderson wants to know more about working with peter gabriel one thing i was trying to find is i'm not exactly even sure how you got that gig how did that even happen I got that gig because I had made my first album Harbinger and it was uh, unreleased. It was sitting unreleased and I was on coffee house tours uh, across America, kind of building my name a little bit and going around the country. 
But Harbinger was unreleased. And the producer of that, you know, his name is Kevin Killen. And I learned so much from him. He's great. He, he had uh, mixed and engineered Peter Gabriel's So album and was a friend. And Gabriel was already on tour with his Secret World Live his tour with um he was using joy ask you first and then he used Sinead o'connor and i love peter so much that i had seen him twice on secret world live with both of those other women and um Sinead left the tour and they were about to film the tour in italy and he needed to get a female singer damn skippy you know he needed to get <laughs> someone to fill Sinead O'Connor's shoes quickly. And that's when Kevin Killen said he, he put forth Harbinger and, wow. and Peter listened to it and David Rhodes, his guitar player listened to it. And, and they, they actually loved it. And I, he, that was enough. And he asked Peter, uh, sorry, he, Peter asked Kevin, can she do it? Like, I know she's like a young, she's starting in the business. Can she handle this? And, and, Kev said definitely, and literally because we didn't have cell phones then. Peter called my, you know, cassette tape voice recorder <laughs> answering machine, and yes. unfortunately, I lost that tape. Oh <laughs> <know>. shoot! <laughs> <laughs> but he just left a message. This is Peter, Peter Gabriel, and you know, we. I'm wondering if you'd like to join my tour. And so yeah. I called and I talked to him, and I was floored because. I worshiped at the altar of his music. I loved his music. I knew it inside and out. And they sent me board tapes of their live, their live tracks. So I knew like, okay, the guitar player, David Rhodes is going to take the third here. And so I'll go to the fifth. And I just knew, I just practiced. I made sure I was ready because you know what? We only had one rehearsal. I remember I was, it was Halloween of 1993. I was flown to Mannheim, Germany. And we had one rehearsal. We didn't even do all the songs. And we're talking like complex arena, yeah. two stages and all kinds of moving parts. And we didn't even do all the songs. I just, I was thrown into Don't Give Up with Peter Gabriel in one rehearsal. And then we, I played in front of 16,000 Germans that night. And like, wow. Few, yeah. And a few days later, we, we filmed Secret World Live, like literally a few days later. So I, wow. had, I had to be ready. Yes. I had to sink or swim, but I loved his music Yeah, and I had seen the tour and I made sure I was ready and I loved his band. So I, I literally was thrown into that. Oh, amazing. I was rewatching clips on YouTube of that show in Italy. And like the, for instance, I, the, in your eyes, again, I'm going to get choked up.
just the watching you all be so joyful singing that beautiful song on that stage and uh watching you two dance together and it, it's it doesn't it's not that it's choreographed but it's in it's in unison and i just to think that there had only been a couple of shows and a couple of re, uh rehearsals to to create the bond that feels so real and powerful in that uh, in that clip that's incredible to me it was incredible it was just incredible and i was i was shy and i was nervous and i didn't even lift my arms hardly ever but <laughs> <laughs> why did you have hairy armpits then too or something no no but i just <laughs> it just shows you like that i was a little yeah. more stayed and and yeah. lacking in self-confidence and also i didn't want to like take anything away from peter whom i yeah. loved so much and oh. um just just figuring it out you know i was just thrown into it and finding my way and and he saw me and incredible I, it was beautiful it was really it beautiful. was it's so beautiful um okay one of our other patreon supporters brian morris asks a very specific question that i'm afraid i didn't know i didn't know so there is a one of his favorite songs of yours is I'm So Ordinary. And apparently there's a video on YouTube of you playing it on a piano in what looks like maybe your living room. Mm -hmm. And in the video, you say it's dedicated to Aaron Engelke. Hopefully I'm saying that right. And he's always wondered who who is Aaron Engelke. Aaron is a hardcore fan. Uh who comes and travels, like he'll go on the road and follow my concerts. So I dedicated it to him. That's <laughs> and great. He, he also supported me in my, in my Kickstarter. I had a couple of Kickstarter campaigns when I was doing this independently. So I wanted to, um, that's great. Dedicate it to him, to a fan. Okay. That's great. Um, okay. Last, last question. Um, again, cherry picking these songs over your career. I'm trying to decide if I want to hear about Latanya or Gloucester Harbor Shore, which I, I love both those songs. Latanya, from what I understand, has, a, has an interesting story behind it. Can you fill me in on either one of those?
Sure, I, I can kind of skim through, um, touch upon them both. But Latanya is not my story, but it's like empathetically looking at using our compassion and our empathy, you know, trying to access that in our heart to look at like a struggling young girl in high school who's basically learned to use her body as her currency, you know. And um, it's just, it's very sad, but it's also um, soulful. And there is some kind of vindication spiritually at the end of the song. And uh, Gloucester Harbor Shore, again, I'm using my empathy and compassion. It's interesting that you chose these songs because even though I'm using um, first-person perspective, these are not my stories. And normally I, I am autobiographical as a writer, but in both of these that you happen to mention, I'm um, writing using my empathy through, yeah. Yeah, through somebody else's story um, in first-person perspective. So I grew up in Rockport, Massachusetts. It's like the end of the earth. It's, yeah. it's tip of an island called Cape Ann on the North shore of Massachusetts. And it's right next to Gloucester, Massachusetts, where the perfect storm happened. If you remember that out, that book and movie and the Gloucester fisherman statue is there and Gortons of Gloucester. And I grew up with fishing families and hardworking folks. And I would pass this statue of the Gloucester fisherman for all, um, you know, they who, who died who, going down in ships. And more recently, they added a statue of the wife of the fisherman because um, so many fishermen's wives become widows. Mm. And so there's this statue on, on the Gloucester Boulevard with her looking out to sea um, for they that go down in ships with her children and the statue really just moved me and the story of so many in my community moves me so i told the story of the fisherman's wife and waiting for the ship to come back and the storm coming in and him not coming home and raising two babies you know on her own and the struggle of that 
and just the meaning of fish too and the oceans and the health of the oceans in our community all of it it's something i was raised with so i just wanted to give voice to some aspect of my community it's so good it's it's a beautiful it's interesting i hadn't thought of that beforehand that i was kind of picking some songs that are you writing about someone else's reality but it's a, I mean, it just proves this point that you write so well and that you uh, inhabit these characters, whether it's your own, uh, owning your own self or uh, telling the story of someone else's. It's, um, it's a huge talent. I, and I just realized I didn't ask about, I don't want to wait, which there's a fantastic story about the whole uh, fantastic in a good and bad sense, really interesting story on the Huffington Post about it all. One thing I do, I should ask, because one of the focuses of this podcast is also sort of on the business side of things. You detail very great, very wonderfully in this story, what the true, what the, or in this article, what the true story of that song is. I have to ask though, I mean, are you, that, that had to give you fantastic mailbox money for a long time. Does it still, okay. I don't even know. Well, it is the song that pays for my life. It's the yeah. song that feeds my family, you know, and I'm so grateful for the song. Yeah. And my grandfather, who inspired the song. Mm -hmm. It's a great and story. I, it just, I'm so grateful for that song. Yes, absolutely. Keeps me alive. And it keeps yeah. me, it's like Robin Hood. I take the money from the hit song and then I can make, continue, afford to make my new work. Yes. You know? So, um, yeah, my, my grandfather inspired that song. And there is a happy ending in the sense that enough fans have posted and complained to Sony <laughs> about it not being employed in the TV show Dawson's Creek that they have made a deal with me again and they're going to be stating the song and they're more importantly they're going to be using my master the re-record of yes it. yes <laughs> yes that's more money for you that's it's even so better <laughs> it means I can pay for my daughter's college Yes, <laughs> and um, it also means that it's a victory for all artists. Yes, you know, again, taking the path of the tortoise, like having faith, <laughs> having faith, staying positive. You know, yeah, yes, accepting a difficult time and going through that calmly, and waiting. And I think you know, time has been my friend. Time has been my friend, and people miss the song. And yeah. and my phone would light up all the time about it. They would yeah. be posting. When, this is not the same show. It yeah. needs the song. 
And I used to be embarrassed, like that one of my songs was a theme song for a television show. Like I thought Neil Young wouldn't do that. Yeah, well, back then that was uncool, but now there are people who would give anything to have what you have. Anything. I know. It's so funny how things change and it really yeah. means a lot to people. So yeah. I'm, to me, this is a victory for the fans and a victory for artists. And I'm, you know. Yeah, it totally is. I was re- in reading that article. I, I, Jan Arden is a fantastic artist in her own right, but your song was replaced by a song by hers, by her, because it was cheaper and they didn't have to pay you as much. And that's just not, that's not right. And that article is from like three and a half years ago. So I'm so glad to hear that there was enough of an outcry that they fixed this mistake. Again, nothing against Jan Arden. She's fantastic, but let's get the original in there and pay the artist that, that created it, you know? It deserves it. Oh, that's so good. And Such I good care, news. I too care about Jan Arden, and I never wanted any acrimony between us. No. And we were put in, put in a very awkward position. It's not her fault. No, but you know, I don't think it's fair, you know, to not be paid for a song by network exactly. television, you know, by yeah. giant, giant corporations. Yeah. They have the money. They have the money yeah. to do it right. Yeah, yeah, and artists are so impoverished. So to yeah. set that precedent is is very dangerous and damaging to all artists. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Good news. Yeah. Good news. Well, good. Paula, I think you're wonderful. And uh, I'm so grateful that you talked to me. And um, you put so much good and uh, light into the world. And I'm really thankful for that. So thanks oh. for being you. Thank you for being you. And what a wonderful <laughs> conversation we had. You're so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. All right, there you have it, Paula Cole. Such a wonderful, gracious lady. I just, and of course, she and I are aligned on so many social issues, and it's just beautiful to hear somebody express her thoughts in that way. I love that. Uh, I want to close it out with her version. I mean, come on. This is her version of What a Wonderful World off of American Quilt. It's gorgeous. Um, I'm waiting to find out. I might have some copies of this CD to give away to our some of our Patreon supporters. So if you want to hop on there and join up, the $2 a month um, tier will put you in the running to win swag like this. I'm waiting to find out. Hopefully I'll get, I can make the announcement in a few days. Um, now, next week, I am not 100% sure what I'm going to do. I haven't decided yet. I have a lot of interviews in the can, some of which I've been sitting on for a while because I have timely ones like Paula that I need to get out. And I'm just not sure. So um, we'll see. We'll see where what happens next week. Huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Yan the Man Makevich, for everything that he does. There's a lot going on in Yan's life right now. We'll hopefully fill you in on that later. But uh, we're really lucky to have him, and we're lucky that he takes the time to uh, keep, continue with this project. Okay? Give him your love. Uh, and you guys know you can find us on Facebook by now. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody. We love you.